just from Esther 5 and 6. And I'd like to invite Claire, if she would come forward now, and Claire is going to read that passage for us. Uh, if you're here, if you've got a Bible, um, why not follow it in your Bible uh, as well? So Esther chapter 5 and 6. Thank you, Claire. Good morning, everyone. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out her, to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now, what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be granted. Esther replied, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favour, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfil my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the kings had honoured him, and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows built, 75 feet high, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go with the king to the dinner and be happy. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the gallows built. That night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded that there Mordecai had exposed Bikthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers, who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honour and recognition had Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows he had erected for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honour, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. 
let them robe the man the king delights to honour and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you've recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He rode Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets and proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisers and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall had started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. Good morning, everyone. Uh, thanks for having me here to preach today. Um, really enjoyed preparing this talk for you guys. So, does God act today? Does God act today? I'm sure you've heard this before, from a sceptical atheist friend to a downtrodden Christian crying out. From the struggle as a faithful Christian to questioning if God exists. Where is God? I think we often ask this as we seek miraculous intervention from God for our everyday lives. I thought I'd start with a lighter example. I've lived in Port Macquarie for about 10 months since I've been here. I've noticed my prayer life has changed dramatically. I've stopped praying a particular prayer. Now, I'm notoriously known for running late for things, and in Sydney, one of the biggest difficulties in the day, whether it be at work or meeting up with friends, is the parking. As I'd often be running late, my almost daily prayer would be that God would provide a good car parking space. I mean, depending on God's prayer is important, isn't it? Since I've been here, it's been a prayer I've not had to pray. Maybe God just did a lump sum deposit for all the parking spaces for the year. But did I wish that God would miraculously conjure up a space for me? Or that his divine providence would make a car leave just as I pulled in? Maybe both. But more seriously, today when we see disasters, pandemics, misfortune and wrongdoing, we might ask if God acts today. When we see Christians persecuted for sharing and living faithfully, or when we see old churches crumbling. When we find ourselves more and more alienated from the increasingly secular societies we live in. When we feel powerless and wish for divine intervention from God. Personally, when I, when I think about injustice in this world, or when I see close friends or family not calling Jesus Lord, I ask this question. But think as a Jew in 480 BC, who we've been reading about in Esther. Your once great nation has crumbled. No, what nation? You live under the Persian Empire in exile. You are God's chosen people. The one and same people who had been promised by God all the way back in Genesis, to one day have a land, a great nation, and God's blessing. 
If you're a Jew, let me capture your outlook in one word, bleak. How does Israel survive? How do you continue to live under the rule of pagans away from Jerusalem? How does the Jewish identity survive? In the midst of this powerlessness, we see throughout the book of Esther that there is one main theme. God faithfully saves his people. We see this theme in fact throughout the Old Testament and the whole Bible. The whole Bible consistently shows us this idea of God fulfilling his promises. Today, we read Esther chapters 5 to 7. Today, in these three chapters, we're going to look at two points, the powerlessness of God's people and God's rescue of his people. After that, we'll look at why an old book like Esther should matter to us. First, a quick recap. Esther, a Jewish woman, has become one of King Xerxes' wives. Her uncle Mordecai has helped her cause and also even helped thwart an assassination attempt on the king's life. However, Mordecai has refused to bow down to Haman, a prince, implied to be in light of his Jewish belief. Haman has since organized a decree for all Jewish people to be killed. And Mordecai and Esther desperately try to save the Jewish people. And now, let's start with the powerlessness of God's people that we see in chapter 5. Where is God? We see once again the wealth and power of the Persian kingdom uh, that the Jews live in. We've already seen in chapter 1 the 180-day banquet and the second banquet, which is as much wine as one could drink. Now in chapter 5, the king's own wife, Esther, must pass the formalities of merely approaching him as she seeks to help the Jews. In verse 4, if it pleases the king, and verse 8, if the king regards me with favour, become repeated refrains from here on. Uh, Esther has a request to help save the Jews, but how is she going to approach the king? We see that despite her power as queen, Esther is still incredibly powerless. Esther is allowed to touch the, the tip of the king's scepter and then wisely brings about her request to the king, cautiously asking multiple times to petition the king over banquets of food. This is, indeed, the best way to pass something tricky by your husband. But we progress, and we see the plot against the Jews is made by someone with immense power. Worryingly for the Jews, Haman's power and success isn't enough to satisfy him. Look with me in chapter 5, verse 9. Haman went out that day, happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate, and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence... He was filled with rage against Mordecai. And continuing in verse 10, calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she's invited me along with the king tomorrow but all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate. He has a 23-metre gallows, or pole, built specifically to kill Mordecai. It's excessive. It's a display of his power and ruthlessness. All seems well for Haman. It seems like the genocide of the Jews will come to fruition. However, as we read, we see how little power the Jews have, and yet the places they've been put in. 
Esther has been appointed queen, and Mordecai is owed a favor by the king. And now we look about how God rescues his people. How does it come about? Read with me chapter 6, verse 1. That night, the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. Mordecai's good citizenship from reporting the eunuch's assassination plot all the way back in chapter 2, verse 19 to 23, literally causes him to be in the king's good books. It all falls apart for Haman from here. Esther, too, has risen to a place of influence for her people, where she has favour with the king. She requests in chapter 7, verse 3, If I have found favour with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition, and spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Haman is soon after killed by his own device, originally intended for Mordecai. And narratively, we come to probably the big turning point in the book of Esther, Haman's downfall. Just when it seems Haman has everything in place to kill Mordecai and the Jews, and defeat seems imminent, we see the ironic turn of events. Perhaps we see this most dramatically when, literally just as Haman is about to ask the king to kill Mordecai, the king asks him to parade Mordecai around the streets in honour. In chapter 6, verse 11, so Haman got the robe and the horse, he robed Mordecai, and led him on horseback through the streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. It's a moment of great irony for someone who has been seen as one of the most powerful characters in our story. But it's like a movie. Who would have seen that the rich, powerful prince goes to honour the peasantly Jew? As we read this shocking turn of events and of God's rescue, I think a question that arises is, is God's rescue a reward for his people's faithfulness? Let's take stock of the Jewish events so far. The opportunity for Esther to become queen, Mordecai's fortuitous overhearing of the conspiracy at the king's gate, the king's insomnia in reading the royal records. None of these events are particularly the strategy of the Jews. Esther doesn't appear to be a book encouraging us to seek reward for being faithful Christians. Well, we might say, in the absence of a mention of God in Esther, is it luck? A catastrophically huge amount of luck. Is God even involved? Well, the Jews have shown their belief that it is more than this. Mordecai in chapter 4, verses 12 to 14, has said, um, he he has absolute certainty that the Jews will survive, if you recall. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your uh, your father's family will perish. And then we see Zeresh's equal certainty, that the Jews' enemies will survive. Read with me in chapter 6, verse 13. Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. Whether Zeresh and the advisors were aware of the history of the Jews, we aren't sure. 
But how ironic is it that the most pro-Jewish statement in the book comes from their enemies? So how do we read the absence of God's mention in the book of Esther? Well, this is different from other times when God delivers his people. The plagues of Egypt and the Exodus, the dream interpretations for Daniel, or the judges where God raises up a war chief, tribal captain, to rescue his people. It isn't the same kind of deliverance as at Egypt through the great miracles of God. In Esther, we see God's people rescued through the providential overruling of natural events. Perhaps in the absence of direct mention of God, we might say God is present even when there are no miracles, no dreams, no visions, charismatic leaders, prophets, or explicit messages from God. God is faithful to his people. He successfully delivers them again and again, as throughout the Old Testament. So now, how do we think about Esther for us today? We don't live in an ancient civilization. We don't have an evil anti-Semitic trying to wipe us out. We don't live in royal courts. But does Esther mention how God acts when a global pandemic happens, or when jobs are hard to come by, or the cost of living is driven up unaffordably? Well, I've gone for a Google search, and when you look up lessons from Esther, the first whole page of the results page in Google are all very similar. I've culled them down to my favorite few, and I wonder if any of them crossed your mind. The first one, we are given divine moments to alter our circumstances. The second, we must stand with courage. And with God's help, we can step out in faith and fight our fears. And my personal favorite, beauty should not make us boastful. I'm very glad this is not something I struggle with. Look, these all center around traits of Esther, or how God empowers us. Intriguing. Now, while sometimes these concepts are helpful and truthful, I don't think these points can be read from our passage today. It makes us people who read what we want to see into the Bible. Please don't see Esther as a moral story of a brave female leader who we should all aspire to be like. This isn't how we read our Bible in the context of the big picture of God's plan. So how do we think about Esther today in light of reading Esther within God's plan? Well, I wonder how often we await the miraculous divine symbols or an affirmation or reassurance for when we're indecisive or struggling to see God and we lack confidence and so we seek reassurance for our choices or our circumstances. Well, we read the book of Esther and we read the Old Testament and we read the Bible. What do we see? We see that God saves his people. He continues to deliver his people out of the hands of evil. He's faithful to the promises he gives to his people all the way back in Genesis. God's people hearing this story would have been reassured in God's providence and steadfast character as they continued in exile, waiting for the appearance of their Messiah or Savior. This compounds more and more as we read countless stories in the Old Testament. Well, we too should be reassured knowing God's promises are kept. 
and that his character is steadfast. It's interesting that just like Haman looked on the cusp of victory and God's people were on the ropes, at the cross, when death and sin appeared to prevail, Jesus died and rose again for us to be reconciled to God. When it looked like evil prevailed both times, God delivered his people. At the point Haman thought he was due for all honour, he was defeated and the Jews saved. When Jesus was hung on the cross for sin, by that same act, Jesus was victorious and Satan's power taken away from him. Sin and death were defeated, and that was the moment God used to reconcile his people back to him through Jesus. We see this in the gospel story. Uh, we can see this in John chapter 13 through verses 27 to 31, just before um, the cross. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as, as, soon as Jesus had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, and now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the son in himself and will glorify him at once. Now, unlike the Old Testament Jews, we actually know that God's promises have already been kept and fulfilled at Jesus at the cross. Paul again states it for us very clearly in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your faith, of your flesh, sorry, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, when I, start, when I started the sermon, I asked, does God act today? Perhaps we ask too little of God. Do we just ask God for a bit of help with our work, family, health, or finances? Perhaps this rescue story of the Jews reminds us that God is faithful to his promises and continues to faithfully carry out his plans for his people to be reconciled to him. We see God has already delivered us. We don't look for God to keep delivering us time and time again, as in the Old Testament. He's delivered us from sin and death once and for all. For Christians, we no longer live as the Jews in uncertainty of how, the God, uh, of how God will act, but we know he has already acted. This is our confidence and reassurance. For those of you in the audience who don't call Jesus as Lord and Saviour, if there's something from Esther you can take, why not see the confidence and reassurance we have in an ultimate authority, someone with ultimate power, God? Let's pray. Um, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for showing us this story from Esther. Um, thank you for delivering your people in Esther and in the Old Testament, and most of all, us, through Jesus at the cross. Uh, we pray that we can take deep confidence and reassurance in knowing how you have already acted to deliver us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.